3. The evening meal. On the sides of the apartment hung implements of war and of the chase, and there were at each corner folding doors which gave access to the other parts of the extensive building. The other appointments of the mansion partook of the rude simplicity of the Saxon period, which Cedric piqued himself upon maintaining. The floor was composed of earth mixed with lime, trodden into a hard substance, such as is often employed in flooring our modern barns, for about one quarter of the length of the apartment. The floor was raised by a step, and this space, which was called the dais, was occupied only by the principal members of the family and visitors of distinction. For this purpose a table richly covered with scarlet cloth was placed transversely across the platform, from the middle of which ran the longer and lower board, at which the domestics and inferior persons federal, down towards the bottom of the hall, the whole resembled the form of the letter BTB or some of those ancient dinner tables which arranged on the same principles, may still be seen in the ancient colleges of Oxford and Cambridge. Massive chairs and settles of carved oak were placed upon the dais, and over these seats and the elevated table was fastened a canopy of cloth, which served in some degree to protect the dignitaries who occupied that distinguished station from the weather, and especially from the rain, which in some places found its way through the ill-constructed roof. The walls of this upper end of the hall, as far as the dais extended, were covered with hangings or curtains, and upon the floor there was a carpet, both of which were adorned with some attempts at tapestry or embroidery, executed with brilliant or rather gaudy coloring. Over the lower range of table the roof had no covering, the rough plastered walls were left bare, the rude earthen floor was uncarpeted, the board was uncovered by a cloth, and rude massive benches supplied the place of chairs. In the center of the upper table were placed two chairs more elevated than the rest for the master and mistress of the family, to each of these was added a footstool curiously carved and inlaid with ivory, which mark of distinction was peculiar to them, a drawing in the Harley and MSS, in the British Museum is shown on page 25, illustrating a Saxon mansion in the 9th or 10th century, there is the hall in the center, with chamber and bower on either side, there being only a ground floor, as in the earlier Roman houses, according to Mr. Wright. FSA who has written on the subject of Anglo-Saxon manners and customs, there was only one instance recorded of an upper floor at this period, and that was in an account of an accident which happened to the house in which the Witton or Council of St. Dunstan met, when, according to the ancient chronicle which he quotes, the council fell from an upper floor, and St. Dunstan saved himself from a similar fate by supporting his weight on a beam. The illustration here given shows the Anglo-Saxon chieftain standing at the door of his hall, with his lady, distributing food to the needy poor. Other woodcuts represent Anglo-Saxon bedsteads, which were a little better than raised wooden boxes, with sacks of straw placed therein, and these were generally in recesses. There are old inventories and wills in existence which show that some value and importance was attached to these primitive contrivances which at this early period in our history were the luxuries of only a few persons of high rank. A certain will recites that, the bedclothes bed reface with a curtain high right and sheet head scrite on, and all that thereto belongs, should be given to his son. In the account of the murder of King Athelbert by the Queen of King Offa, as told by Roger of Windhofer, we read of the Queen ordering a chamber to be made ready for the royal guest, which was adorned for the occasion with what was then considered sumptuous furniture. Near the king's bed she caused a seat to be prepared, magnificently decked and surrounded with curtains, and underneath it the wicked woman caused a deep pit to be dug. 
The author from whom the above translation is quoted adds with grim humor. It is clear that this room was on the ground floor. Illustration, Anglo-Saxon furniture of about the 10th century. From Old MSS. In the British Museum. 1. A drinking party. 2. A dinner party. In which the attendants are serving the meal on the spits on which it has been cooked. 3. Anglo-Saxon beds. There are in the British Museum other old manuscripts whose illustrations have been laid under contribution representing more innocent occupations of our Anglo-Saxon forefathers. The seat on the DIs, an Anglo-Saxon drinking party, and other illustrations which are in existence, prove generally that, when the meal had finished, the table was removed and drinking vessels were handed round from guest to guest, the storytellers, the minstrels, and the gleaming conjurers or jesters beguiling the festive hour by their different performances. Some of these Anglo-Saxon houses had formerly been the villas of the Romans during their occupation, altered and modified to suit the habits and tastes of their later possessors. Lord Lytton has given us, in the first chapter of his novel, Harold, the description of one of such Saxonese Roman houses, in his reference to Hilda's abode, the gradual influence of Norman civilization, however, had its effect. Though the unsettled state of the country prevented any rapid development of industrial arts, the feudal system by which every powerful baron became a petty sovereign, often at war with his neighbor, rendered it necessary that household treasures should be few and easily transported or hidden, and the earliest old chests which are still preserved date from about this time. Bedsteads were not usual, except for kings, queens, and great ladies, tapestry covered the walls and the floors were generally sanded, as the country became more calm, and security for property more assured, this comfortless state of living disappeared, the dress of ladies was richer, and the general habits of the upper classes were more refined, stairs were introduced into houses, the parlor or talking room was added, and fireplaces were made in some of the rooms, of brick or stonework, where previously the smoke was allowed to escape through an aperture in the roof. Bedsteads were carved and draped with rich hangings, armoires made of oak and enriched with carving, and presses date from about the end of the 11th century. It was during the reign of Henry II, 1216-1272, that wood paneling was first used for rooms, and considerable progress generally appears to have been made about this period. Eleanor of Provence, whom the king married in 1236, encouraged more luxury in the homes of the barons and courtiers. Mr. Hungerford Pollen has quoted a royal precept which was promulgated in this year, and it plainly shows that our ancestors were becoming more refined in their tastes. The terms of this precept were as follows, viz. The King's Great Chamber at Westminster be painted a green color like a curtain, that in the great gable or frontispiece of the said chamber, a French inscription should be painted, and that the King's little wardrobe should be painted of a green color to imitate a curtain. In another 100 or 150 years we find medieval art approaching its best period, not only in England, but in the great Flemish cities, such as Bruges and Ghent, which in the 13th and 14th centuries played so important a part in the history of that time. The taste for Gothic architecture had now well set in and we find that in this as in every change of style, the fashion in woodwork naturally followed that of ornament in stone, indeed. In many cases it is more than probable that the same hands which planned the cathedral or monastery also drew the designs for furniture, especially as the finest specimens of wood carving were devoted to the service of the church. The examples, therefore, 
of the woodwork of this period to which we have access are found to be mostly of Gothic pattern, with quaint distorted conceptions of animals and rectals, adapted to ornament the structural part of the furniture, or for the enrichment of the panels. To the end of the 13th century belongs the coronation chair made for King Edward I 1296-1300, and now in Westminster Abbey, this historic relic is of oak, and the woodcut on the following page gives an idea of the design and decorative carving. It is said that the pinnacles on each side of the gabled back were formerly surmounted by two leopards, of which only small portions remain. The famous coronation stone which, according to ancient legend, is the identical one on which the patriarch Jacob rested his head at Bethel, when he tarried there all night because the sun was set, and he took of the stones of that place and put them up for his pillows. General XXVII can be seen through the caterfoil openings under the seat. The carved lions which support the chair are not original, but modern work, and were originalt in honor of the Jubilee of Her Majesty in 1887, when the chair was last used. The rest of the chair now shows the natural color of the oak, except the arms, which have a slight padding on them. The wood was, however, formerly covered with a coating of plaster, gilded over, and it is probably due to this protection that it is now in such excellent preservation. Standing by its side in Henry III.S Chapel in Westminster Abbey is another chair, similar, but lacking the trefoil Gothic arches, which are carved on the sides of the original chair. This was made for and used by Mary, daughter of James I.I., and wife of William I.I.I. On the occasion of their double coronation, Mr. Hungerford Pollen has given us a long description of this chair, with quotations from the different historical notices which have appeared concerning it. The following is an extract which he has taken from an old writer. It appears that the king intended, in the first instance, to make the chair in bronze, and that Eldon, the king's workman, had actually begun it. Indeed, some parts were even finished, and tools bought for the clearing up of the casting. However, the king changed his mind, and we have accordingly 100 s. Paid for a chair in wood, made after the same pattern as the one which was to be cast in copper, also 13 s. 40. For carving, painting, and gilding to small leopards in wood, which were delivered to Master Walter, the king's painter to be placed upon and on either side of the chair made by him. The wardrobe account of 29th education I shows that Master Walter was paid L119 S. 70, for making a step at the foot of the new chair in which the Scottish stone is placed, and for the wages of the carpenters and of the painters, and for colors and gold employed, and for the making a covering to cover the said chair. In 1328, June 1st, there is a royal writ ordering the abbot to deliver up the stone to the sheriff of London, to be carried to the Queen Mother, however, it never went, the chair has been used upon the occasion of every coronation since that time, except in the case of Mary, who is said to have used a chair specially sent by the Pope for the occasion, the above drawing of a chair in York Minster, and the two more throne-like seats on the full-page illustration will serve to show the best kind of ornamental ecclesiastical furniture of the 14th century. In the choir of Canterbury Cathedral there is a chair which has played its part in history, and, although earlier than the above, it may be conveniently mentioned here, this is the Archbishop's throne, and it is also called the chair of St. Augustine. According to legend, the Saxon kings were crowned therein, but it is probably not earlier than the 13th century. It is an excellent piece of stonework, with a shaped back and arms, 
relieved from being quite plain by the back and sides being panelled with a carved moulding. Penshurst Place, near Tunbridge, the residence of Lord Dillisley and Dudley, the historic home of the Sydneys, is almost an unique example of what a wealthy English gentleman's country house was about the time of which we are writing, say the middle of the 14th century, or during the reign of Edward III. By the courtesy of Lord Dillisley, the writer has been allowed to examine many objects of great interest there, and from the careful preservation of many original fittings and articles of furniture, one may still gain some idea of the hall as it then appeared, when that part of the house was the scene of the chief events in the life of the family the raised dais for host and honored guests. The better table which was placed there illustrated and the commoner ones for the body of the hall, and though the ancient buffet which displayed the gold and silver cups is gone, one can see where it would have stood. Penshurst is said to possess the only hearth of the time now remaining in England, an octagonal space edged with stone in the center of the hall, over which was once the simple opening for the outlet of smoke through the roof, and the old and irons or fire dogs are still there. Illustration, bedroom in which a knight and his lady are seated, from a miniature in Atia, a poem by Christine de Pisson, XIV, Century, French. An idea of the furniture of an apartment in France during the 14th century is conveyed by the above illustration, and it is very useful, because, although we have on record many descriptions of the appearance of the furniture of state apartments, we have very few authenticated accounts of the way in which such domestic chambers as the one occupied by a knight and his lady were arranged. The prédieu chair was generally at the bedside, and had a seat which lifted up the lower part forming a box-like receptacle for devotional books then so regularly used by a lady of the time. Illustration, bedstead and chair in carved oak, from miniatures in the Royal Library, Brussels, period, XIV, century. Towards the end of the 14th century there was in high quarters a taste for bright and rich coloring, we have the testimony of an old writer who describes the interior of the Hotel de Boheme which after having been the residence of several great personages was given by Charles V.I. of France in 1388 to his brother the Duke of Orleans. In this palace was a room used by the Duke, hung with cloth of gold, bordered with vermilion velvet embroidered with roses, the Duchess had a room hung with vermilion satin embroidered with crossbows, which were on her coat of arms, that of the Duke of Burgundy was hung with cloth of gold embroidered with windmills. There were besides eight carpets of glossy texture with gold flowers, one representing the seven virtues and seven vices, another the history of Charlemagne, another that of St. Louis. There were also cushions of cloth of gold, twenty-four pieces of vermilion leather of Aragon, and four carpets of Aragon leather, to be placed on the floor of rooms in summer. The favorite armchair of the princess is thus described in an inventory a chamber chair with four supports, painted in fine vermilion the seat and arms of which are covered in vermilion morocco, or cordovan, worked and stamped with designs representing the Sunday birds, and other devices bordered with fringes of silk and studded with nails. The 13th and 14th centuries had been remarkable for a general development of commerce, merchants of Venice, Geneva, Florence, Milan, Ghent, Bruges, Antwerp, and many other famous cities had traded extensively with the East and had grown opulent and their homes naturally showed signs of wealth and comfort that in former times had been impossible to any but princes and rich nobles. 
laws had been made in answer to the complaints of the aristocracy to place some curb on the growing ambition of the bourgeoisie, thus we find an old edict in the reign of Philippe the Fair 1285-1314, no bourgeois shall have a chariot, nor wear gold, precious stones, nor crowns of gold and silver, bourgeois not being prelates or dignitaries of state shall not have tapers of wax, a bourgeois possessing 2.000 pounds to noise or more, may order for himself a dress of 12 sous 16 years, and for his wife one word of 16 sous at the most, etc. 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 This and many other similar regulations were made in vain, the trading classes became more and more powerful, and we quote the description of a furnished apartment in Pilacroix's Manners and Customs of the Middle Ages, the walls were hung with precious tapestry of Cyprus, on which the initials and motto of the lady were embroidered, the sheets were of fine linen of Reims, and had cost more than 300 pounds. The quilt was a new invention of silk and silver tissue. The carpet was like gold. The lady wore an elegant dress of crimson silk, and rested her head and arms on pillows ornamented with buttons of oriental pearls. It should be remarked that this lady was not the wife of a great merchant, such as those of Venice and Genoa, but of a simple retail dealer who was not above selling articles for four sous, such being the case. We cannot wonder that Christine de Pisson should have considered the anecdote worthy of being immortalized in a book. Illustration, The Newborn Infant, showing the interior of an apartment at the end of the 14th or commencement of the 15th century. From a miniature in, Histoire de l'Aubelle-Hélène, National Library of Paris as we approach the end of the 14th century. We find canopies added to the, chairs, or, chairs adorsret, which were carved in oak or chestnut and sometimes elaborately gilded and picked out in color. The canopied seats were very bulky and thrown-like constructions, and were abandoned towards the end of the 15th century, and it is worthy of notice that though we have retained our word, chair, adopted from the Norman French, the French people discarded their synonym in favor of its diminutive, chaise, to describe the somewhat smaller and less massive seat which came into use in the 16th century. Illustration, Portrait of Christine de Pisson seated on a canopied chair of carved wood, the back line with tapestry, from miniature on is in the Burgundy Library, Brussels, period, XV, century, the skilled artisans of Paris had arrived at a very high degree of excellence in the 14th century, and in old documents describing valuable articles of furniture, care is taken to note that they are of Parisian workmanship, according to Lacroix, there is an account of the court silversmith, Etienne Lafontaine, which gives us an idea of the amount of extravagance sometimes committed in the manufacture and decorations of a chair, into which it was then the fashion to introduce the incrustation of precious stones, thus for making a silver armchair and ornamenting it with pearls, crystals, and other stones, he charged the king of France, in 1352, no less a sum than 774 Louis. The use of rich embroideries at state banquets and on grand occasions appears to have commenced during the reign of Louis Ix, Saint Louis, as he is called and these were richly emblazoned with arms and devices. Indeed, it was probably due to the fashion for rich stuffs and coverings of tables, and of velvet embroidered cushions for the chairs, that the practice of making furniture of the precious metals died out, and carved wood came into favor. Illustration, State Banquet, with attendant musicians from miniatures in the National Library, Paris, period, XV, century, chairs of this period appear only to have been used on very special occasions, indeed they were too cumbersome to be easily moved from place to place, 
and in a miniature from some MSS, of the early part of the 15th century, which represents a state banquet. The guests are seated on a long bench with a bat carved in the Gothic ornament of the time. In Skeet's Dictionary, our modern word, banquet, is said to be derived from the banes or benches used on these occasions. The Great Hall of the King's Palace, where such an entertainment as that given by Charles V to the Emperor Charles of Luxembourg would take place, was also furnished with three dressoirs for the display of the gold and silver drinking cups, and vases of the time. The repast itself was served upon a marble table, and above the seat of each of the princes present was a separate canopy of gold cloth embroidered with fleur de lis. Illustration, scribe or copyist, working at his desk in a room in which are a reading desk and a chest with manuscript. From an old miniature period, XV. Century. The furniture of ordinary houses of this period was very simple. Chests, more or less carved, and ornamented with iron work. Settles of oak or of chestnut, stools or benches with carved supports, a bedstead and a predio chair, a table with plain slabs supported on shaped standards, would nearly supply the inventory of the furniture of the chief room in a house of the well-to-do merchant in France until the 14th century had turned. The table was narrow, apparently not more than some 30 inches wide, and guests sat on one side only, the service taking place from the unoccupied side of the table. In palaces and baronial halls the servants with dishes were followed by musicians, as shown in an old miniature of the time, reproduced on page 39, turning to German work of the 15th century. There is a cast of the famous choir stalls in the Cathedral of Ulm, which are considered the finest work of the Swabian school of German wood carving, the magnificent panel of foliage on the front, the Gothic triple canopy with the busts of Isaiah, David, and Daniel are thoroughly characteristic specimens of design, and the signature of the artist, Jörg Zerlin, with date 1468, are carved on the work. There were originally 89 choir stalls, and the work occupied the master from the date mentioned, 1468, until 1474. The illustrations of the two chairs of German Gothic furniture formerly in some of the old castles, are good examples of their time and are from drawings made on the spot by Professor Heidloff. There are in our South Kensington Museum some full-sized plaster casts of important specimens of woodwork of the 15th and two previous centuries, and being of authenticated dates, we can compare them with the work of the same countries after the Renaissance had been adopted and had completely altered design. Thus in Italy there was, until the latter part of the 15th century, a mixture of Byzantine and Gothic of which we can see a capital example in the casts of the celebrated pulpit in the Baptistry of Pisa, the date of which is 1260. The pillars are supported by lions, which, instead of being introduced heraldically into the design, as would be the case some 200 years later, are bearing the whole weight of the pillars and an enormous superstructure on the hollow of their backs in a most impossible manner. The spandrel of each arch is filled with a saint in a grotesque position amongst Gothic foliage, and there is in many respects a marked contrast to the casts of examples of the Renaissance period which are in the museum. This transition from medieval and Gothic, to Renaissance, is clearly noticeable in the woodwork of many cathedrals and churches in England and in continental cities. It is evident that the chairs, stalls, and pulpits in many of these buildings have been executed at different times and the change from one style to another is more or less marked. The Flemish Buffet here illustrated is an example of this transition, and may be contrasted with the French Gothic Buffet referred to in the following paragraph. 
There is also in the central hall of the South Kensington Museum a plaster cast of a carved wood altar stall in the Abbey of St. Denis, France. The pilasters at the sides have the familiar Gothic pinnacles, while the panels are ornamented with arabesques, scrolls, and an interior in the Renaissance style, the date of this is late in the 15th century. The buffet on page 43 is an excellent specimen of the best 15th century French Gothic oak work, and the woodcut shows the arrangement of gold and silver plate on the white linen cloth with embroidered ends, in use at this time. Illustration, Flemish buffet, of carved oak open below with paneled cupboards above, the back evidently of later work, after the Renaissance had set in, from a photo, by Messrs. R. Sutton and Company from the original in the S. Kensington Museum, period, Gothic to Renaissance, XB, century, we have now arrived at a period in the history of furniture which is confused, and difficult to arrange and classify, from the end of the 14th century to the Renaissance is a time of transition, and specimens may be easily mistaken as being of an earlier or later date than they really are. M. Jack Mart notices this gap, though he fixes its duration from the 13th to the 15th century, and he quotes as an instance of the indecision which characterized this interval, that workers in furniture were described in different terms, the words cother maker, carpenter, and hookier trunk maker frequently occurring to describe the same class of artisan. It is only later that the word menuisier, or joiner, appears, and we must enter upon the period of the Renaissance before we find the term, cabinet maker, and later still, after the end of the 17th century, we have such masters of their craft as reason are described as, ebonists, the word being derived from ebony, which, with other eastern woods, came into use after the Dutch settlement in Ceylon. Jack Mart also notices the fact that as early as 1360 we have record of a specialist, Jehan Petrot, as a chessboard maker, illustration, court of the ladies of Queen Anne of Brittany, from a miniature in the library of St. Petersburg representing the Queen weeping on account of her husband's absence during the Italian War, period, XV, century, chapter III, the Renaissance, the Renaissance in Italy, Leonardo da Vinci and Raffaele Church of St. Peter, contemporary great artists the Italian Palazzo methods of gilding, Inlaying and mounting furniture by a tradure and other enrichments Ruskin's criticism. The Renaissance in France, Francois I and the Chateau of Fontainebleau influence on courtiers. Chairs of the time design of cabinets M. E. Bonneth on the Renaissance. Bedstead of Jean d'Albret deterioration of taste in time of Henry I. V. Louis XII. Furniture Brittany Woodwork. The Renaissance in the Netherlands. Influence of the House of Burgundy on art the chimney piece at Bruges and other casts of specimens at South Kensington Museum, the Renaissance in Spain, the resources of Spain in the 16th and 17th centuries influence of Saracenic art, high-backed leather chairs, the Carthusian convent at Granada, the Renaissance in Germany, Albrecht Dürer famous steel chair of Augsburg German 17th century carving in Street Saviour's Hospital, the Renaissance in England, influence of foreign artists in the time of Henry VIII end of feudalism Hampton Court Palace linen pattern panels woodwork in the Henry VII. Chapel at Westminster Abbey livery cupboards at Hongrave Harrison quoted the parlor. Alteration in English customs chairs of the 16th century coverings and cushions of the time. Extract from Old Inventory South Kensington Cabinet Elizabethan Mirror at Goodrich Court Shaw's Ancient Furniture The Glastonbury Chair Introduction of Frames into England Characteristics of Native Woodwork Famous Country Mansions 
alteration in design of woodwork and furniture panel rooms at South Kensington the Charter House Grays in Hall and Middle Temple the Hall of the Carpenters Company the great bed of where Shakespeare's chair Penshurst place. It is impossible to write about the period of the Renaissance without grave misgivings as to the ability to render justice to a period which has employed the pens of many cultivated writers, and to which whole volumes, nay libraries, have been devoted. Within the limited space of a single chapter all that can be attempted is a brief glance at the influence on design by which furniture and woodwork were affected. Perhaps the simplest way of understanding the changes which occurred, first in Italy, and subsequently in other countries, is to divide the chapter on this period into a series of short notes arranged in the order in which Italian influence would seem to have affected the designers and craftsmen of several European nations. Towards the end of the 15th century there appears to have been an almost universal rage for classical literature, and we believe some attempt was made to introduce Latin as a universal language. It is certain that Italian art was adopted by nation after nation, and a well-known writer on architecture Mr. Parker has observed, it was not until the middle of the 19th century that the national styles of the different countries of modern Europe were revived. As we look back upon the history of art, assisted by the numerous examples in our museums, one is struck by the want of novelty in the imagination of mankind. The glorious antique has always been our classic standard, and it seems only to have been a question of time as to when and how a return was made to the old designs of the Greek artists, then to wander from them a while and again to return when the world, weary of overabundance of ornament, longed for the repose of simpler lines on the principles which governed the glorious Athenian artists of old, the Renaissance in Italy. Italy was the birthplace of the Renaissance. Leonardo da Vinci and Raffaele may be said to have guided and led the natural artistic instincts of their countrymen, to discard the Byzantine Gothic which, as Ambonif has said, was adopted by the Italians not as a permanent institution but, folk demure, as a passing fashion, it is difficult to say with any certainty when the first commencement of a new era actually takes place, but there is an incident related in Michael Bryan's biographical notice of Leonardo da Vinci which gives us an approximate date. Ludovico Sforza, Duke of Milan, had appointed this great master director of painting and architecture in his academy in 1494, and, says Bryan, who obtained his information from contemporary writers, Leonardo no sooner entered on his office, than he banished all the Gothic principles established by his predecessor, Michelino, and introduced the beautiful simplicity and purity of the Grecian and Roman styles. A few years after this date, Pope Julius I. commenced to build the present magnificent Church of Street Peters, designed by Bramante d'Urbino, kinsman and friend of Raffaele to whose superintendence Pope Leo X confided the work on the death of the architect in 1514, Michelangelo having the charge c. 